Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Uh, We've brought to you the sacrifice of praise, and we continue to uh, give to you our attention as we uh, look at your word. Jesus, we often, we remember that often you said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, So help us to hear your word today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, Mark 9, 30. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 929. Page 929. While you're turning there, let me give you a, bit of, a little bit of context. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is in the midst of his ministry. It's actually about right about halfway through the book of Mark. Uh, he's, half, he's in the midst of his ministry, which includes the instruction and training of his disciples. In chapter 8, the previous chapter, the disciples had a breakthrough in understanding of sorts. When they recognize, they finally get that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And now that they grasp that, sort of, Jesus has begun to teach them what it means for him to be the Messiah. Because some of their old notions of what Messiah is or what Messiah should be are wrong. They're wrong. Um, he, he didn't come up to set up an earthly kingdom, for instance, in an earthly way. The kingdom of God is different in many respects from earthly kingdoms. And the manner in which he sets up his kingdom is also different. It's not about political power or building coalitions. It's not about amassing an army and staging a coup. In fact, the way he plans to set up and establish the kingdom of God is to suffer, to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, to be killed and rise after three days. And the truth is, the disciples are overwhelmed by this. Peter, in fact, Peter, in chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus for this notion that Jesus has to die. And in return, Jesus rebukes Peter. He justly rebukes Peter for Peter's misapprehension of things. And he also begins to explain to his disciples in chapter 8 that not only is the Messiah going to suffer and bear a cross, but that all his followers will also suffer and that there is a cross in their future as well. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 34, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So that's, that's the setup for our passage today. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. And in the first few verses in this passage that we're looking at, Jesus repeats some of what he said in chapter 8. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read through verse 32. Then uh, Jesus and his disciples left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. This is stuff he told them in chapter 8. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Again, it's only in the previous chapter that Jesus has started talking to his disciples about his impending crucifixion. He didn't start talking to them about his crucifixion right at the beginning when he called them. That was too soon. And actually in chapter 8 and chapter 9, when he begins to tell them about the crucifixion, it feels a little bit too soon. The disciples aren't 
processing this and can't make sense of it. Now, we on the other side of the cross, we can make a lot of sense of it, a lot more sense of it. But they, this was fresh to them. But Jesus is starting to drill down on this reality that he came to die. He came to die. And he talks about it in chapter 8. He talks about it here in chapter 9. And again, he talks about it in chapter 10 as well. Now, the passage we're looking at again is verses 30 through 50. And what happens in the rest of chapter 9 here in verses 32 through 50 or 33 through 50 is a sort of spelling out of some of the implications of the cross. Jesus, he's talked about the cross. He's going to spell out now some of the implications of the fact that the Messiah must suffer. Um, Of course, there are many implications of the cross, implications with regards to salvation, implications with regards to Satan and his realm, implications with regards to the universe. But the implications of the cross that Jesus focuses on here in chapter 9 have to do with our conduct, with our conduct, our behavior as followers of jesus christ as disciples of christ how do we live how do we live in light of the cross how do we live in light of the fact that jesus our savior suffered was rejected killed and raised again from this passage then we're going to learn or for many of us relearn Uh, some principles for living as followers of Jesus Christ. Three principles for living in light of the cross. So look at verse 33. Let's read verses 33 through 37. Then they came to Capernaum, that is Jesus and his disciples. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. So, as they're traveling along, the disciples apparently had a spirited argument. Jesus was apparently not in on the argument. He knew they had had an argument, but he wasn't in human earshot of it because he asked what they were arguing about. Now, of course, he, he's the son of God. He knows what the argument was about. I say he wasn't in human earshot, but he was in divine earshot. He knew what the argument was about. Um, but he's asking the question not to gain information. <laughs> he's asking the question um, in order for them to confess it. Uh, sort of like when God asks Adam in the garden, where are you? Or like when he asks Cain, uh, where is your brother Abel? I remember several years ago where we were at my parents' house and my brother asked, my brother Jeff asked his oldest son, why is your younger brother crying? And it wasn't for information Jeff was seeking. He was seeking a confession on the part of his uh, son. Anyway, Jesus asked, what were you arguing about on the way? And their answer, their answer is very interesting. What's their answer? They were silent. <laughs> they were silent. They, of course, they had been arguing about who was the greatest, who was the greatest. And I would love, I, I would love to have a transcript of that argument. I would love to, to know if it was a subtle or, you know, if, or, you know, I, I don't know. I just love the transcript, but we don't have it. 
But anyway, they were silent before Jesus. And it probably suggests that they already know that this argument probably shouldn't have happened, that it probably was inappropriate um, or embarrassing at the least. Anyway, Jesus sits down and he explains to them that among his followers, it is those who put themselves last who are first. It's those who lower themselves who are raised up. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the principle for us, conduct in light of Christ, servanthood, not self-promotion. Servanthood, not self-promotion. In God's kingdom, it is those who serve who are noticed. Among Jesus' followers, it is those who adopt a posture and lifestyle of service who are noticed, who are brought to the head of the line, so to speak. This is one of the implications of the cross, one of the implications of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, like master, like disciple. And Jesus is the ideal servant. He's the perfect servant. He's the prime example. He, the Lord of life, the Son of God, the Word of God, through whom everything that is was created, came to serve sinful humanity and to serve even to the point of surrendering his life on the cross. The disciples even though Jesus is teaching this lesson here in chapter 9, they, it still doesn't register with them because in chapter 10, in chapter 10, James and John ask Jesus if they can be his number two and number three men when he sets up his kingdom. And, and when the other disciples find out about this, it sparks a whole other argument again about the pecking order among Jesus' disciples, about who is who uh, among, among the twelve. And so Jesus has to reteach the whole lesson. In fact, flip over to chapter 10, verse 42. 10:42. They've already had they've already had another dispute. And Jesus, verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, "You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary." On the contrary, totally different from the world system. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of all. And then he points to the fact that they are to follow his example. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. And how? To give his life. He served to the utmost. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. There's the cross. There's the cross. And that's how we live in light of the cross through service. Jesus served others and so should his followers. Jesus' mission was to serve in the extreme. And our mission should be to serve others as well. And this is part of what it means to deny yourself. We read that in 834. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. We're looking to others. We're promoting others. The disciples were self-promoting at this point. Don't be a self-promoter. Don't promote yourself. Look for ways to elevate other people, to build other people up. And Jesus illustrates this in verses 36, chapter 9, back to chapter 9, verses 36 to 37, when he takes a child and stands them there in front of his disciples and he embraces the child. And then he says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. The point is that we should look down on no one, no matter how insignificant they may seem, no matter how little they can seem to affect anything. 
We shouldn't consider anyone as unworthy of our service and kindness and attention. Think just a moment here. Is there, is there someone that, uh, that you look down on or someone you avoid or someone that you just don't care to interact with because you think maybe subconsciously that they're beneath you? Um, maybe because they're weird or they're different. Maybe, and maybe it's someone here at church or maybe it's me. <laughs> Uh, or it's your family, someone in your family or your neighborhood, maybe someone at school, maybe, maybe at the places of your shop. Now, if someone came to your mind, I want you to yell out their name. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. But if someone, if someone, uh, if someone comes to mind, it's, it's time to rethink your attitude towards that individual. It's time to rethink your attitude towards that individual, and it's time to start serving them with kindness. That is very Jesus-like to start serving I was reading, um, I was reading about a man, an Indian, uh, a guy in India. He's a believer, and his name is Sandeep, S-A-N-D-E-E-P. Um, he, because of the recent surge of deaths due to coronavirus in India, uh, Sandeep knew of a village that had desperate needs, um, and he so risking his own health, uh, he traveled to that remote village. Um, where people hadn't eaten, some people hadn't eaten in three days. He traveled to that remote village and provided them with food and other necessities. He just took a whole bunch of stuff with them and started giving them out. And the villagers were absolutely shocked at his act of kindness and service. And then Sandeep asked the villagers if they would be willing to hear stories from the Bible. And one man responded, he said, Our local leaders did not come check on us. And even local people in the village won't help or share any food because of fear. But you, a complete stranger, have come and cared for us. We don't know why. We want to listen to anything you will tell us. So service in the name of Christ is often an entrance for the gospel as well. The principle here is service, not self-promotion. That is conduct in light of Jesus' sufferings. Now look at verse 38. We're going to move on. Verse 38. The, apostle John, or the disciple John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, he wasn't following us. I expected because he wasn't following you, but it, it, he says because he wasn't following us. That's interesting. Verse 39, Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, so the the, the disciples here stop another guy who's not one of their group, not one of their clique, because he can't be doing it right. He's doing it wrong, you know, casting out demons here. In Jesus' name, and they stop him. This is an interesting case. I'd like to know more about this individual and why he wasn't an an obvious follower of Christ, but we don't know. But Jesus sees and evaluates that this ministry on Jesus' behalf is legitimate. Indeed, he was driving out demons in Jesus' name. He was ministering on behalf of Jesus, and he was quite effective. Now, we didn't, just an interesting tidbit here, we didn't read read the beginning of chapter 9, but earlier in the chapter chapter 9, there's an issue 
Because some people bring a demon-possessed boy to the disciples, and they can't drive the demon out. Uh, so, and here we have, we have a guy a little bit later who is driving demons out in the name of Jesus, and the disciples shut him down. You know, maybe a little bit of jealousy there doesn't say. But the lesson for us seems relatively clear. How do we live in light of Jesus's suffering? Practice charity, not criticism. It's easy to criticize others. It's easy not to, resi- not to rejoice in the success of others. But we should practice charity and not criticism. It's tempting to criticize what other believers do, especially if they do it different. It's tempting to criticize their ministry. Oh, that, she's way too emotional. Or she's, she's so unemotional. His sermons are way too long. Or... His sermons are way too short to be effective. Or that's a poor way to evangelize, to, to evangelize door-to-door evangelism. That won't win anybody to Christ. Or lifestyle evangelism, that is so slow. That won't win anyone to Christ. That church has way too many ministries going. Or that church has way, or doesn't have enough ministries going. Where is the organ? Where are the drums? You know, opposing opinions here, different opinions. But that church looks too much like a gym uh, to be worshipful. Or that church looks too much like a church to be effective. <laughs> they spend way too much on their building, or they give way too much to missions. They don't dress up for God on Sunday mornings, or they're just dressing up to show off to others on Sunday mornings. They barely get them wet when they baptize. Or they practically drown them when they baptize. They don't serve wine for communion. Or they serve wine for communion. You get the idea. It's easy to, it's easy to criticize what others do in the body of Christ. Jealousy and or a critical spirit can rear its ugly head among Christians. And among ministers. And among Sunday school teachers. And among Christian publishers and among missionaries, and among worship leaders, and among denominations, etc. Remember, remember that you play an important role in God's kingdom right where you are, but remember also that you are not the linchpin for God's kingdom. He has many others who also play important roles, and they may minister sometimes in a way that is different, but different doesn't always mean it's wrong. The important thing is not that you are exalted, but that Jesus is exalted, that his name is put forward, that his name is preached. It's easy to criticize other ministries. And I'm preaching to this guy right here. It's easy sometimes for me to do that. And the spirit (laughs) starts poking at me when that happens. Um, It's easy to be critical of other ministries, but there are ways of because their way of ministering is weird or dumb or whatever you might think. But be careful of that. That's that's not the way of the Lord. Let's be receptive and supportive of others who are ministering to exalt the name of Jesus. Let's assume others are genuine until they prove themselves otherwise. Now, there, there are wolves in sheep's clothing, and Jesus warned us about that, and we need to be on guard. But let's not immediately assume that everyone's a wolf. The disciples shut down this guy who was driving out demons in Jesus' name. In verse 41, Jesus says that even a small action, like giving a cup of cold water to drink because of his name, even something like that is noted in heaven. 
It's noted in heaven, and it's rewarded. We need to be careful that we aren't criticizing something that brings great joy to Jesus Christ. There's a call for discernment. We need to be discerning when it comes to other ministries, when it comes to teaching and so forth. We need to be discerning. But sometimes we call our criticism or our concern, we call it discernment when it's really conclusion jumping. We haven't done the hard work of discernment, and instead we just jump to conclusions. So let's be careful and practice charity and not criticism. Our third principle then comes from verses 43 through 48. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here is a very serious warning. And I note soberly that the context here is Jesus talking to his disciples still. He is warning them against hell. And it may be helpful to remember that one of his disciples ends up in hell. And what would be the cause of his disciples ending up in hell? It's, according to this passage, unchecked sin. Unchecked sin in their life. Sin that is unrepented of. So our third principle here is not that. It's self-denial, not self-indulgence. Self-denial, not self-indulgence. Most people have a tendency to be strict with others and charitable with themselves. But Jesus is calling us in this passage to be charitable towards others, but strict with ourselves. I just want to unpack this last passage with a few subpoints here. Letter A, sin is serious and to be actively dealt with. Sin is serious and to be actively dealt with. So how should Christians look at sin that is still present in their life after they've given their life to Christ? Should they just, eh, whatever, not worry about it? I mean, Jesus died for it. It's paid for, right? Or should they deal with it? Should they deal with it? Well, the Bible is clear all over the New Testament that Christians should not ignore known sin in their life. Yes, our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, all of them, but the expectation is that you will kill sin in your life, that you will repent of it. You must repent of it. And by repent, I mean stop, stop doing it. And some of those entrenched sinful habits, it may take a while to get those out of your life, but you're working at it. You're working at it. And every time you fall again, you confess your sin to the Lord. You confess your sin to the Lord. If, you're, if you have known sin in your life and you're not dealing with it, I would suggest that it might be time to look, look closely to see if you are born again. Look closely to see if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because as a Christian, the Spirit of God should be in your life prompting you and moving you to uh, conviction with regards to this sin so that you are acting against this sin. But if you feel no compulsion to deal with, say, your porn habit or your drunkenness or your lying or your gambling or your envy or your greed or your sharp tongue, you may not be born again. You may not. 
Jesus died. The Holy Spirit should be prompting you to give this stuff up. Jesus died to free you from sin, not only from its penalty, but also from continuing to practice it. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin? He's talking to believers. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. And live for righteousness. In other words, so that we might stop sinning and start walking in a way that pleases Christ. By his wounds you have been healed. Letter B. Sacrifice and limitations on your personal freedom are in order. Sacrifice and limitations on your personal freedom are in order. When Jesus talks about cutting off your hand or your foot or gouging out your eye, he's speaking metaphorically here. He's, he's not actually telling you to cut off your hand or cut off your foot or gouge out your eye. He's speaking in metaphor. We do that all the time. It's raining cats and dogs. We don't actually expect someone to go out and say, there's no cats and dogs, it's just water. Um, he's speaking metaphorically. He's saying, he's saying that you may need to take radical action. You may need to take radical steps in order to kill your sinful habits. Now, the idea of hands suggests, for instance, activities. Activities that lead to sin. If certain activities lead you into temptation and sin, cut those out of your life. Feet, cut off your foot, suggest places uh, that you go that might lead you into sin. Are there events that you attend or places that you frequent that inevitably bring about temptation that you can't say no to? Well, stop going there. Stop letting your feet take you there. And eyes would suggest, for instance, viewing habits, reading habits. What do you take in with your eyes? You may have to cut out of your life some things that other people can handle. That other people can handle and it doesn't lead them into sin. But if it leads you, if it consistently leads you into sin, you may need to cut that out of your life. In the movie Fireproof, I don't know how many of you saw the movie Fireproof. In the movie Fireproof, the, the husband got rid of his computers. He had, a, he had a porn problem. Didn't he have a porn problem in Fireproof? Yeah. And he got rid of his computers. You know, he was, he was gouging out his eyes, so to speak. If watching the news or reading the news is tempting you to despair, or if it's tempting you to hatred, maybe time to limit your intake or cut it out. Don't be led into sin. A study was done, a study was done where people were, were brought into a dark room. They, were, they sat at a table in the dark, and they were asked to rate the flavor of the strawberry yogurt. 59% rated it as having a nice strawberry flavor. 59%. The thing was, the yogurt was chocolate. <laughs> but 59% rated the yogurt as having a nice strawberry flavor. They were led into believing that this was strawberry yogurt. If, if certain people or places or activities or media can easily lead you into sin, even though you have formally renounced it as a believer then you need to cut those things out of your life. Third sub-point is this. The consequences are serious or they're dire. Consequences are dire. Jesus warns here of hell three times in this passage. Now, some say that in the Bible, Jesus said more about hell than anyone else in the Scriptures. And I, I think they're right. I think they're right. When he, and when he talks about it, he is warning people against it. He died so that you and I can escape it. He doesn't want anyone to go there, and that's why he warns of it. But he clearly believes it's there. 
He clearly believes it's a reality, and he has several things to say about it. In this passage, there, there are at least three. It's a place of punishment. Hell is a place of punishment. It's because of sins that people end up there. It's also a place of incredible suffering, of incredible suffering. It is better, it is better to be severely limited in this life rather than to have a whole full life and go into hell. That's what he's saying. Because the misery there is incredible. And, and finally, it's an eternal place. It's an eternal place of misery. The unquenchable fire, the fire that doesn't go out. Where their worm does not die. In other words, they don't cease to exist. They don't cease to exist in hell. There's not a point where, okay, that's it. It's eternal, eternal suffering. The consequences are dire. So self-denial, not self-indulgence, is what it's called for. Um, Romans 8.13 shares this principle. For if you live according to the flesh, if you continue, and he's talking to believers here, if you continue living according to your sinful nature, not taking aim at the sins in your life, you will die. Spiritual death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the natural course of the Christian. The natural course of the Christian is to continue all their lives putting to death the sin that is in their life. And that's a, that's a lifelong process. That's a lifelong process. Um, you get the Holy Spirit helps you put to death one sin in your life, and then he brings your, to your attention, uh, there's, a, there's another attitude that you need to work on or, or whatever. You know, it's a, repentance is a lifelong thing. All right, verses 49 to 50. Look at verses 49 to 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, for verse 49, uh, there are a lot of different interpretations as to what this verse means. A lot of scholars, preachers, and so forth are not in agreement as to what this passage means. So I'm just going to give you my interpretation of it, and uh, feel free to search it out for yourself. I think it refers to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think it refers to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist predicted that Jesus would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Well, what does fire do? Fire destroys, but it also purifies. Sometimes it destroys, sometimes it purifies. The fires of hell are the fires of destruction. The fire of the Holy Spirit is a purifying fire. And the fire in verse 49 acts like salt. Everyone will be salted with fire. It, it preserves. It, it flavors. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So, in verses 43 to 48, we are called to root out sin in our lives. In verse 49, I think what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is helping us. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also working to root out sin in our lives. There are two kinds of fire. The eternal fire of suffering in hell in verses 43 to 48, or the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. Everyone goes through fire. The question is, which fire is for you? Then verse 50. Salt is good, but the salt should lose its flavor. How can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus is using a lot of metaphor here. Um, in another place, Jesus calls his followers the salt of the earth. We help purify. We help preserve and flavor the culture around us. But we only do that as long as we abide in Jesus Christ. 
as long as we are in close fellowship with him. So when Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, I think he means that you should make sure you are maintaining a close relationship with Christ so that you can have the godly influence and effect on others that we are called to have as believers in Christ. So how do we live in light of the cross? How do we live in light of the fact that Jesus, our Savior, suffered, was rejected, betrayed, killed, and raised again? Three principles we discovered here. Servanthood, not self-promotion. Charity, not criticism. Self-denial, not self-indulgence. And how do we do this? How do we live this out? Where does the power come from? The power comes from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The, the power comes from abiding in Jesus Christ. If you abide in Christ, apart from you, you can, you can do nothing, Jesus says. So we abide in Christ. Press into Jesus Christ daily and you will be transformed. And these virtues will increasingly become a part of who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for the encouragement that your word brings. We thank you for the promises in your word. We also thank you for the warnings. They are also a manifestation of your grace that we might experience the blessings and the rewards um, that, that, that are there for us um, if we will walk in holiness, if we will fulfill our calling, if we will realize our potential of who we are supposed to be as your people. So help us to do that, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to be servants, that we would be servant-hearted. I pray that you would help each one of us to be charitable towards others. Yes, you've called us to be discerning, but you've especially called us to be charitable and um, understanding and bear with the failings of one another, etc., etc. Help us to do that. And help us, Lord, to uh, say no to sin in our lives. Help us to be continually repenting of sin. That wonderful promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So help us, as we discover sin in our life, to repent and confess. And we know that the power of the Holy Spirit is within us, helping us to do that, and we thank you for that, and we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen.